0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another all new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos, Gaming, classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action, that's NicoAction. That's N I C O A C T I O N.
1: And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X Nate, X Gray, X.
0: You can find the show at X's and at X's for Podcast on Twitter. And we're here today with a really new Mutants heavy kind of episode, and I couldn't be more excited. We're going to be taking a look at X Men Unlimited Infinity Comics. Numbers 42 and 43 Which focus on Cypher A rather hot topic New Mutants member Back in the day And now a guy I kinda can't imagine Krakoa surviving without Before moving on over to New Mutants Number 28 for an investigation Of what's been going on in Limbo Now Limbo is gonna be the common thread That brings us to our last bit of coverage Jane Foster and the Mighty Thors Numbers kinda 1 through 3 With a bit more focus on 2 and 3 But the thing there is Somehow Sim and Premier take center stage. And it's really an interesting time to be an X-Men fan, especially with the way the X-Men are reintegrating into the Marvel Universe and major events like Axe. But, you know, specifically the New Mutants, I think that team was so influential on so many of us in this generation of x reefs
1: Which is the thing that I recognize, but I am so one of the people in the minority in that. And just because of how I got into comics and comic collecting, I am firmly a Generation X kid all the way through those are the teens that taught me how to be a teen mutant and it wasn't until a lot later that I was able to get my hands on old New Mutant stuff and really appreciate the groundwork that Claremont and Sienkiewicz laid with that book and get to understand what like my partner Jake who's everybody has heard on the show is the biggest New Mutants person and it was just not something that I got in my soul because I wasn't a kid that was looking up to these kids being raised raised at this mutant school. But it's really been a privilege as an older person to get to read these stories and have access to all this stuff now and get to relate to people for whom this was a really big deal. I mean, there are so many people who are younger than I am who feel this way about the Academy X kids, which again, by that point, now I'm too old for them. So I don't really look up to them. I think they're really cute and cool. But it's so amazing that no matter what the team is, you can understand the teens' resonance resonating with the kids that are collecting comic books for the first time at the time that those teens are the X-Men school kids.
0: I totally hear what you're saying. I really do think your generation of X-Kids imprints on you because for me, it is the original New Mutants kids. I was lucky enough to have a pretty near complete collection of the title kind of, you know, handed to me from my dad. And so for me, the New Mutants kids growing up were as vital as the Uncanny X-Men. I would interpolate my collection trying to use you know back ads and in-house ads to try and build out a, a story and I would just know to have everything caught up by the next crossover and the new mutants kids you know there was something about Sam and Burdo that really represented sort of like an idealized sense of freedom and camaraderie and the idea that Sam and Danny could lead together there was something really magical to me and a number of these characters were actually from other places not just the new mutants karma made her first appearance in Marvel team up number 100 a story featuring work by Frank Miller the B story to that issue is of course one of the most famous Black Panther Storm moments from prior to their marriage a lot of fans cite that as a really great example of their ability to interact early on from there we have characters like Ileana and Cypher who did make their debut in Uncanny X-Men before officially joining the ranks of the new mutants and Gen X kind of had that same thing going for it where you had Jubilee and you had page both of whom you know had a bit more history than just the generation next crossover
1: and you know jubilee is a great example because i started collecting comics before the cartoon came out but i was very young and there was so much stuff that i did not understand and the cartoon really allowed me to kind of get the basic beats that i needed to then read the comics and understand who everybody was jubilee really is the anchor character for that so to then go from having her in that position as I'm starting to understand how all these characters interact. One of my earliest, like comics really resonating with me moments is actually, you know, involves Jubilee and Ilyana, which is when Ilyana is dying of the legacy virus and Jubilee is looking out for her. And Jean, who is my favorite character, has to take a really maternal, big sisterly role for Jubilee and explain to her what's happening and hold her as Ilyana goes brain dead, and they just have to accept that there's no turning. Back and she's going to die. And that made Jubilee such a significant character for me that it was really a no-brainer that I would transition into following her in a book about her and her schoolmates. The parallels be- between Ilyana and Paige are really interesting because you know Ilyana is there from the first appearance of Colossus, getting rescued when the tractor's about to hit her. And Paige is just generically a Guthrie sibling. You know, everybody accepts that there's going to be a bunch of mutants among the Guthrie siblings and eventually she gets a story where she's not quite the page that's going to appear in Generation X but but
0: she can sure turn into a bird
1: yeah exactly <laughs> both Ilyana and Paige are these inevitable members of the X-Men universe from the start but it takes a minute to get there and in the back of your mind you're always aware that these characters that you love have families and that that's going to be important but it's not until somebody really hits the button and takes the next step that those characters begin to formulate as their own. And Ilyana and Paige are both really fantastic examples.
0: You know, and when you brought up Jean, I thought to myself, that moment has always been a great example of why the X-Men is able to work as a family. Jean and Jubilee don't really have a whole lot of time together. The period of time leading up to that moment, which is going to be referenced again in our coverage of New Mutants number 28, the moment in which the legacy virus claims Ilyana as a plot victim, we get a lot of of sort of re-synergizing the X-Men. The New Mutants had begun in 1983 through the pages of Marvel Graphic Novel number four. Marvel Graphic Novels were a really interesting way to present a specific idea at a specific moment in time. They often featured new characters, sometimes they would feature significant stories like God Loves Man Kills, but New Mutants kicks off with this prestige number one in the oversized magazine trim that Marvel Graphic Novel comes in and it's by Chris Claremont and Bob McLeod. Bob McCloud ultimately leaves the title pretty early on and we get a stable of rotation before Bill Sienkiewicz comes in and Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz tread new ground like the X-Men had never been to with the additions of Warlock and a further evolution of the previously mentioned Ileana and Doug to the team. Now New Mutants would go on under Chris Claremont's pen for more than half of its run. Ultimately, Wheezy Simonson would come in and do a significant portion of the title before a change of hands to Rob Liefeld and at the very end Fabian Nicieza would see the title go from the book about the new team of X-Men students to the book about like Cable and Deadpool and Weapon X who could forget Kane over the years the new mutants would sort of take a huge step back for titles like the aforementioned Gen X. Gen X was a big idea at Marvel that much like we've discussed with both Spider Girl and most recently in our coverage later this episode of Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor a title that kind of out lived the expectation on its celebrity. The New Mutants would appear in the pages of New Mutants, Truth or Death, 1 through 3, an Illyana kind of centric, focused, targeted miniseries that came out in the 90s. It was sort of part of the Ben Robb era of Excalibur. That was a big time for miniseries and little events like that. The New Mutants would return with New Mutants Volume 2 in 2003 and 2004. Now that would give way to New X-Men Academy X, a title that I love very much, which would also see the new mutants become the name of a squad now okay teak to put a little a little something on it you know how much this run means to me and just what a big new mutants volume 2 new X-Men academy X fan I am what is your relationship with the team i know you said like they were a little bit after your time so you th- see them as cute kids but you know for me i was 18 when that was coming out they were just two years younger than me and i could really see a way in which I could kind of 10 did you have any kind of connection with them or have you developed a connection with the new X-Men Academy X kids since
1: you and I are a year apart and in this case it is a year that ends up making a ton of difference for you this is coming out right at the end of your senior year and you're at the end of high school and you can look at a book like this and think of this as like the kids that you know that are a little bit younger than you in high school that you think you know have a lot of potential that you would be friends with you can even see yourself kind of in the group but it's a you know you're a little bit older, you're you're about to go on to other things. For me, it's the end of my freshman year of college, and I am mentally as far away from high school as I can possibly put myself. This is a world that I have moved on from entirely that I'm now looking back on and thinking, oh, that was so long ago. I'm so grown up now. This is so different. This was a time in which I was really coming back to comics. I was uh, feverishly off the heels of my reading Morrison's run, which had just concluded. I had decided that it made sense to start paying attention to Avengers because Disassembled was happening. And yeah, I mean, I really did love Academy X. By that point, I knew a lot more about the new mutants because I had read the stuff that they had been in since. You know, Rain is one of my favorite characters because I really love the X Factor run that she's a part of. I kind of now see how it's more problematic than I realized at the time. But I saw her as a standout character there. You know, Danny was probably the one I felt the least familiar with. But then seeing her thrust into this leadership teacher role at that time, I kind of immediately resonated with her as the adult in the room. And I love the students. I mean, I love Dust off of Morrison's run. I like the contrast between Elixir and Wither. I thought these were all really great characters that they created. You know, the New Mutants, the thing about them that has been said is that their powers are really kind of plot specific. They're a little bit off when you compare them to the actiony combat powers of all of the ex men that had come before. Generation X kind of tries to move closer to something that could be used in action comics, but they're all really weird. And that is something I really love. They're very 90s. They're very X-Files powers. There's a lot of times where, you know, somebody like Skin is almost more of a liability than he is a Mr. Fantastic when it comes to the elasticity of his skin. And then you get to the Academy X kids. And I think that's where somebody said, we tried a bunch of different stuff when it comes to the teens. Let's just do some standard, active, powerful mutants, and also let's expand the background characters that we see in the school, so we can have some people that don't have the flashiest, most fighty powers, and we can establish that you know this is a school. There's a diverse body of students that we're going to follow, but the main students that we're going to follow are going to be pretty solid action heroes, and that is something that carried these students through not just the new X Men Academy X book, the new X. X-Men series that came after into, you know, things like uh, Second Coming, Messiah Complex, Messiah War. These kids ended up being part of it the whole time, experiencing some insane traumas, but always being formidable and plausible in fights such that they were able to stay at times that I feel like for the New Mutants and for Generation X, it sometimes felt less plausible that they would be a part of the action. That
0: really is a major factor of that initial run of New X-Men. Academy X. As I mentioned, New X-Men Academy X spins out of the pages of New Mutants Volume 2. New Mutants Volume 2 spins out of X-Men Unlimited number 42, which has this amazing Emma Frost cover. It sees Danny Moonstar in a kind of starring role, pulling together a new school, and it ran parallel to New X-Men. The end of New X-Men. Roughly everything from the end of Riot at Xavier's through the end of Planet X is on a very clear, tight time line that things can't really interact with the timing of Planet X, so instead we had other titles telling the status quo of what was going on in the background. And at the end of its 13 issues, New Mutants Volume 2 became New X-Men Academy X, which it ran for 20 issues, plus a 4-issue Hellions miniseries, which was another team at the school, plus a 1-issue yearbook special it tied into House of M. But one of the major things about this run that I have always considered is they do have their fair share of ciphers. Now just to pick on Cypher for a minute, Cypher is one of the most hotly discussed original New Mutants. While he's not on the first team, he is definitely within those first 12-13 issues he starts appearing. His first issue of New Mutants is issue 13, which is shortly after his debut in January of 1984 in Uncanny X-Men 177. He would only go on to have about 75 appearances before his ultimate death in Fall of the Mutants in New Mutants 61. He would appear just a handful of times before Truth or Death where he would appear for three issues and then there's a lot of sort of uh, weird stuff with Doug Locke. is Doug Locke this character that clearly looks like Doug but is all techno-organic virus is it Doug is it Warlock is it their fusion and you know all said and done it's Warlock really influenced by Doug at that point we find out that Doug is still pretty dead and he doesn't make his big comeback till Necrotia and that's it. 2009 so doug managed to stay properly dead from march of 1988 until roughly december 2009 that's a really long time to be out of the cultural zeitgeist giving the world a chance to change and react to the character a little bit more different but in that time yeah we did see things like the idea that characters like cypher do have a place just not in the tactical battle team what is your relationship with that sort of cypher was dead for 20 years before returning in the pages of New Mutants by Zeb
1: Wells. Cypher is kind of always a Gwen Stacy to me. The exception, of course, being Doug Locke, which just complicates things so much because it would make much more sense if it was in some capacity Doug reanimated, fused with Warlock and the idea that it is not Doug at all and it is basically just Warlock. It makes it so that Doug being dead is a much more significant thing and it has gone on a lot longer, which in some ways is special, in some ways, you know, it, because you had to give the explanation in the first place, it cheapens it a little bit. But I do remember thinking, especially after Morrison's new X-Men, that the way we conceive of how mutant powers might work is so much more expansive than it was in the 70s and 80s, that a character like Doug becomes a really interesting one. And this is a thing that you and I have bonded over, because I really do think there are primarily two Two schools of thought. One being, you know, Doug's power is that he can speak and understand any language basically as soon as he encounters it. And that's it. He, you know, if they meet aliens, he can speak to the aliens, but it's not a telepathic power. And he's not somehow going to become a telepath on the scale of Xavier. He can't, you know, speak weapons or anything like that. And on the one hand, I definitely agree. On the other hand, I love that when he came back in Necrotia, the first thing that they have him do is be able to read body language and as a result be an excellent fighter. We are about to talk about a story in which the idea of what a mutant who can understand any language can do is much more complicated than just be the team's universal translator and so I love the idea that like you could get down to a most basic form of what the universe is and what that is looks a lot like language and because Doug can read every language he can essentially become a master of the universe I love when you go drill as deep as you can with what a person's power is. And Doug is a really great example of how somebody with a seemingly pretty innocuous power can have something really interesting. And it doesn't all need to be combat-based. I did think the body language thing was really cool. But, you know, you can also have characters who say, yeah, I absolutely could fight. I just don't want to. You can choose as a writer not to use them for combat-based stuff, even if you could think of a reason why they could have a combat-based power. But I love the idea that you can drill down and fold out and find different ways to explore any particular mutant's power such that you can make them so much more complicated and interesting than the initial pitch for whatever the character is. And Doug I think is a really fantastic early example.
0: I very much agree, and to step back for just a moment, after those 20 issues of New X-Men Academy X come to a close, the title is revamped in the era of the Decimation in which the title seemingly had a hit list of students it was going after and you know while i've never been the biggest fan of the kyle and yost era of new x-men which spans from issue 21 to issue 46 i think there's a lot of really incredible stuff in there like scotty young's the search for magic which is a huge component in the returning of iliana rasputin magic it connects to x in furnace an arc mentioned in our coverage later this episode so i mean it's definitely worth a look but something that that run did better than almost any other run of new mutants after the original is it gave way to an x-force the title comes to star laura and this is a significant ground for a lot of personal development for laura i just don't know that new x-men that iteration directly into x-force that iteration really represents the ideals that make a new mutants team to me it always felt a little bit more like a strike force than a learning ground for coming of age but i also think it was born of a very specific time. We also got some other really interesting sort of youth books in that period. We of course had NYX, which also featured Laura, but it featured my precious kid Nixon. We've done some coverage on those before. Big fan of the idea, but man, I feel like NYX never really worked. And to be totally honest, I don't love Young X-Men. What's your relationship with that sort of pre-AVX no one's sure what the fuck a kid's team is
1: era? I both love and hate it. It is extremely punishing of these children in a way that goes beyond what I think is healthy for young people who are reading it to see the teenage team experiencing. At the same time, Generation X is my team when I'm a kid in 1994 looking at these teams, and between then and when stuff really amps up for the Academy X kids, school shootings become a thing, and the world becomes a lot scarier and a lot more violent, and I do feel like the violence that the Academy X kids experience is parallel to the violence that children were experiencing in schools in America in the real world. And I do think that is an important parallel to be reflected in the comics. I don't think it's something that you can ignore. I don't think it helps things to just say, imagine a world in which you don't have to deal with this stuff. I think it's important to say, you know, these are how your heroes cope with something that is is parallel to something that you might experience in your own life. It does get very heavy. The bombing of the school bus is a lot. But the idea that these students experience this stuff and want to fight back sometimes in ways that are productive, in ways that say, you know, let's let's be part of the team. Let's be part of the solution. Let's defend our people and, you know, love our community. And other times they are just traumatized and shocked and go off with no plan and get their asses handed to them. And these are two very very real reactions to experiencing trauma. So there's a lot there worth digging into. There's a lot that I think the intention was correct. I think it speaks to what was going on at the time. I do think it gets a little heavy. And I do think that because of M-Day and the depowering of mutants and the fact that they become a minority of thousands in a world of millions, you lose a lot of the important school stuff. And they just kind of get sequestered on this island trying to fight for survival so the thing is they also really last on page continuously a lot longer than the other two teams who once their books end or once people leave the team they just kind of float into the ether and a few people stay like Cannonball stayed around a long time but characters like Moonstar you would lose sight of for a while and a lot of the Academy X kids from the time they first appear until I mean for some of them it really goes like almost to Krakoa that you generally know where they are at all times and in that way, I think I'm, I'm happy that these characters have had such a long life. I just wish their school years were a little more schooly, for lack of a better term. I get it.
0: In part because the term New Mutants is meant to represent sort of the banner of youth in mutant culture. But at the same time, it's become so synonymous with one specific group of people such that it's really difficult to move that what is the teen team book vibe forward. We've seen some recent attempts attempts with things like Children of the Atom, and I guess in some ways we've also seen attempts to showcase the youth of Krakoa in X-Men Green, but I certainly would not refer to X-Men Green as the teen team. So when you're stuck with a world where it's hard to really use the New Mutants book to focus on actual schooling as a result of the fact that oftentimes when the book is called New Mutants, it stars twenty eight year olds, I think you do find that sort of difficult place where we need to be careful about the way we use the word new. Now of course New X-Men, it did ultimately you know, giant size X-Men number one levels of revolutionize the line. So New X-Men's use of new is really smart. New Mutants' use of new is a little tricky, especially from that 1983 debut, since in so many ways, New Mutants even back then, until the Sienkiewicz years felt a lot like oh more x-men skews younger so i think putting these characters in books like x-men unlimited like they did with this cypher story i think it really is a better use because i am challenged terribly by the idea that these characters can't escape this moniker of new.
1: So I refer to them as the New Mutants, Generation X, and the Academy X Kids. And I think at this point, like, New Mutants is almost said, like, lovingly snarkily when you refer to that title. Like, when people decide that they're going to do a new run that's going to feature Danny, Rain, Karma, Ilyana. The title New Mutants, it's like, oh yeah, the New Mutants. Like, but they're not new. They're now adults. To me, they're almost 30, if not older than 30. And so it's almost funny at this point that they're still in books that are titled that I see the kind of flip side of that which is like cute and funny as it may be and as well as we might remember them that way they're also fully developed characters with such interesting lives who have done so much in the X-Men and maybe it's time that we find a teen name for them and a book name for them that can reflect that and we if not retire the title of New Mutants altogether take a look at all of these new actual New Mutants and I'm not even talking about you know the Academy X kid's some of whom have now been aged down to be students again in the pages of this run of new mutants. I'm talking about an entirely fresh new team of young people who have come to Koa, who can really be the new mutants all over again and restart that cycle of young people learning and learning how to be part of mutant culture, seeing their elders fight for their community and becoming a part of that fight as well.
0: Well, certainly this story, X-Men Unlimited numbers 42 and 43, Cypher and the Cryptolect parts one and two by Alex Pacnadel, Damon Cusero, Felipe Sobrero, and VCs Joe Sabino. We see Cypher able to grow and able to move past that sort of frozen position, but in many ways, it's sort of inevitable that these characters will slide back into familiar places, and how can you expect them not to when their name literally defines them in sort of an infantilizing way?
1: And I think it's interesting that this book features a primary character from each generation well not even from each generation from each book because you've got Cypher from the New Mutants you've got Banshee from Generation X and then you've got Beak who is a new X-Men character but who kind of floats on a little bit to be at least partially featured around the Academy X years he gets depowered and weird stuff happens but he is of that youngest most recent generation in which we had school aged mutants and these are the ones that are primarily tackling the problem at hand
0: one of the things that I thought made this story really great was the initial framing device at the beginning. The question of the reconciliation of the function of language alternating between something capable of committing such beauty and capable of declaring and describing such horror and such ugliness is a really important one because, and you know, this might sound a little critical, but I if I knew somebody who was like talking like that to me I would have a really hard time taking him seriously to his face. You know, like that sort of like if out of nowhere someone said that to me. But when you consider who the this is and their concerns. Yeah, it is that level of importance. And seeing that sort of internalization of what matters to Cypher as an adult, as someone in a marriage with a hyper codependent relationship that's totally healthy. There's nothing wrong with codependence if it's, you know, symbiotic and you both help each other grow. I think, you know, that really was the right way to get me to understand that we are discussing matters of significance. You know, this. This is the foundation of something big.
1: And Cypher is, to me, always going to be a character that when he appears like this, my ears perk up because we know that he is the through line between the mutants and the island. And on top of that, he is working with his partner in many ways, Warlock, to create some sort of other connection with the island that involves techno-organics. And we don't know how this is all playing out, but we know that Cypher is a key player and he is playing his own game that really subverts the rules that Xavier and Magneto and the Quiet Council have been trying to lay down that Moira was attempting to set up. He is a power player and I in some ways really appreciate that the writers are not abusing that and using him as a deus ex machina too often and when they do, they do it in a very tongue-in-cheek kind of fun way that speaks to who Cypher is as a younger person, among all of these older people that think that they're making all the rules but seeing him in the context of an unlimited story which I think while the X-Men's line of unlimited stories have been treated on the whole really well by editorial we still know that these are not published stories they are kind of off to the side a little bit we don't have a lot of information about readership or how people respond to them so they are a little bit siloed which in some ways can be frustrating but in other ways I think is really to their benefit and in a case like this with a character like Cypher who is an Enigmatic and really important. Knowing that he's getting this two-part story in this little silo, I just immediately I'm interested and I'm in to kind of follow him in a way that I know is not going to be like how we have followed him so far. Unquote.
0: I'm not here to watch incredibly boring people be boring really boringly. I'm here to watch fantastical people be hyper-fantastical in unbelievable ways. There is something about the narcissistic, egocentric idea that cypher must create a perfect language like it makes him kind of Tony Starkish. certainly not the corrupt nightmare that is Tony Stark but you know whenever people get really hard on Tony Stark I'm like yeah but man don't we dislike that guy like it's hard not to see what a reaction he gets and this idea that despite the contributions of others like the contribution of bureaucracy from Charles and Kurt's liturgy to the idea of Krakoa as a living language shaping in front of them we see a flow Flawedness to Cypher's ego. And like, that's a huge step up for Cypher. I'm not being insulting of Cypher, but frequently the character isn't given the room to be this sort of multifaceted, multi-layered, and dynamic. So I'm kind of here to celebrate that in some ways, I think, you know, this desire to de- design an incorruptible language, while totally noble, this idea that he wants no one to be able to do anything with what he is creating in any way other than the way he wants it to be used. That is not the nature of art, and already makes the idea of what he's trying to infuse into this language to make it superior at odds with
1: the goal of infusing it. I think that that really speaks to this position that he has taken up where he has the ultimate bird's eye panopticon view of everything that's happening on Krakoa. And I think he sees that he is responsible for. For things in a way that nobody realizes and I think that's really cool for the character but I think you're absolutely right it is something that you it will shine a light onto your flaws if you decide that you are somebody who is going to have to play the role of knowing best and not participating in a democratic process the nicest thing you can say and you want to say it about somebody like Cypher is you are kind of missing out on a lot of the point point. and I like that Cypher while doing things like subverting Charles and Moira in ways that we really root for is himself not a perfect person you know he's got his best friend who we love and we, he's got his super hot wife which is just a fucking hilarious throughline line since X of Swords that I think is again a really awesome piece of character development for him these are all things that we love and we cheer on and we love to see that he can communicate with the island and he has such a big role but none of that means that he is beyond reproach that he can't be a flawed character that he can not make mistakes and that I wouldn't still root for him in the face of him making a really dumb mistake and that I don't still root for him when I see him make a rather facile one that isn't going to have a ton of consequences in the pages that we're reading where he just kind of doesn't necessarily get that he can't be the one arbiter of language. It is an incorrect thing to think but in no way does it make me think well now I'm fucking dumb with Cypher because he doesn't get it.
0: Yeah it makes me like him more because he's not just Robo Brarian. like 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 he is like a whole realized
1: person. And, you know, he's not the ultimate Paladin knight of goodness and he'll, f- he'll save everything and he'll make the right language and, you know, just write him as the hero that we all need.
0: Yeah. This is a level of flaw to his thinking that I really appreciate seeing, but you know what I did not appreciate seeing? What's I did not order my bird boy extra crispy no. and my poor bee. He got fried. It was cute seeing Warlock just kind of sitting in Doug's lap <laughs> as Bay and Doug communicate. Kate about Doug's poems. I don't think I get Bay. I love Bay. I love Bay. If somebody was like, tell me Bay in just a few words, I would be like, I don't know, headpiece. I don't know. Yeah,
1: I feel like I might split the difference on how much they have tried to give us about Iska because I think everything they've given about uh, given us about Iska confuses the situation more and makes the readers and you know, the fandom on Twitter do a lot of speculation rather than just kind of reading what happens and following the next step where Bay, I think we have not gotten enough and so she has this one really awesome, note. she has two notes, she's a badass warrior and she loves Dove and those are two really cool things but I might have split the difference and give, taken a little less from Iska and a little more from Bay, and gotten to know both of these Arakan women a little bit better in the ways that I think are important for the stories that they're in.
0: Yeah, because like I loved this Bay. like this was great I don't know that I feel like I've read this bay in any other place, but I would like this to be the bay I see more.
1: Yeah, I like that she is establishing relationships with tangential characters. I like that she, you know, she obviously tolerates Warlock to a certain degree, but she also gets very annoyed with
0: him. Now, by the time the X Factor team comes in, I had a specific realization about the nature of progression in a comic in digital form versus a comic in physical form. And I was startled by it. Because I felt like that opening scroll was pretty long. Not in a bad way. I loved the amount of prose, especially for a book all about language, which I don't know. It's unbelievable how beautiful the art is on this book. It's unbelievable how beautiful the art is on this book. And yet the words themselves, which I often say, you know, why bother having such a beautiful artist if you're going to cover it in prose? The words never feel like they're cluttering this beautiful art, despite their feeling like there is a a lot of words, but not in a bad way. It made me realize the nature of scroll speed. In a comic, you kind of want, visually, your book to pace out so that it reads pretty evenly across your 22 pages, but with scroll speed, that kind of doesn't matter. You get to just enjoy the speed at which it scrolls and how the book reads, as long as the book has a pretty decent read speed. The one thing I did notice was that perhaps the first issue felt significantly denser than the second.
1: Issue. Yeah, I think I want to say that it's all the setup, but once we dig into the meat of the fact that people are getting burned out by something that has come to the island, I feel like we just pour into that a little bit more. I didn't have a problem with it reading it. I guess when we got to ultimately what the explanation was of what was burning them out and how that relates to Cypher's ideas of language, I was surprised at how quickly we made the shift from pretty dense prose to really letting the visual language do a lot of the talking. It was just ironic given the fact that this is all about spoken and written languages that once we start to really dig into what that might mean, we really go heavily into the visual and the density of the prose soften quite a lot.
0: Yeah, and I was fascinated by this idea of a mutated living language. Now, I ultimately feel perhaps that, you know, the creative team here created such a beautiful idea and, you know, if everything had had the space to be as nuanced and flourished and given the room to breathe. If everything could just get that extra legroom seat on the flight, I feel like this would have been one of the best X stories I've possibly ever read. But because we were limited as an audience by, you know, with the space that the writer was limited by, I felt like there were times I really couldn't engage with the ideas. The idea of the living language, amazing. And when I talk about the story, it's going to be with great admiration. I perhaps feel like it ultimately reads a little bit like a verbally transmitted pathogen, like a virus transmitted through a spoken word, kind of like a magical thing. The further evolution of it through Cypher, his kindness, his understanding, his living thing to living thing care
1: is hugely an elevator for the story. And I think we saw in Judgment Day recently the idea that the majority of mu- on Krakoa, do not have combat base powers. They need to be protected. You know, Cyclops says to Steve Rogers to you know keep people safe and evacuate them because the mutants that are most of the mutants that are here can't fight the hex and they can't protect themselves. And I think introducing ideas like that and the idea that there are very few but some conceptual mutants people who whose mutation turns them into something non corporeal and not really even uh, mentally tangible in a lot of ways is a really fascinating. In concept, just like with how complicated Cypher's powers could become if you really explore them, mutant powers as a whole, the idea behind what somebody could develop as an ability, that has really expanded as well. And I love this idea of conceptual mutants. And, you know, language is something we all experience. It makes sense that this would be a conceptual mutant that could exist. And it works really well with Cypher. This is a mutant circuit in the making. If you let us, we could end up talking about this for a really long time which speaks to the fact that maybe even just a third issue could have really helped this a lot. We've seen pretty few Unlimited stories get just two issues. Jason Lowe had a run that was multiple issues, but they were spread out in a way that, for me, didn't really work. And then he got one that was about Generation X, which is a lovely one-off story, but I think that given that it's the reunion of the Generation X kids after a really long time, one really wasn't enough. We see a lot of success with three, four, five-issue arcs in the X-Men Unlimited line, and it surprises me that this particular story about Doug, of all people, was not given a little bit more.
0: This two-issue structure means that the Banshee don't speak, warlocks near sacrifice to the possession of Doug feels so fast, and when that first issue had all of that room to wax poetic so beautifully, it felt a little bit of a disservice to the incredible new character of Etienne who also the art you know as I love the art the art is so beautiful the character models are so powerful in terms of physical structure there's so many examples of terrific form and dimension something that's so important is proportion Cypher needs to not be buff because then we lose a little bit of who Cypher is if he's just drawn the way that like I also don't like when Matt Murdock is drawn super buff like I like him strong Cypher should be like hot jock gymnast buff not like buff gymnast buff you know what I mean and like he and that's if
1: you're being real generous with the body because again Cypher just isn't a fighter Like you know he's he's probably not doing that much exercise for athletics
0: yeah and there's nothing wrong with it if he does and I think that's really great if he chooses to but like a guy like Cypher as we're as we've now seen in this story has such a beautiful vast internalization that like I imagine he hears a car start and goes mm, your alternator is gonna go soon and everybody's like are you a witch now and he's like well I can read witchcraft I can read the language of spells they're beautiful no um, I can hear the language of your alternator and it's starting to get older it's it's moving on it feels like it served you really beautifully and it's loved being a part of the car unit it's a part of and I think you should do something to celebrate the end of your alternator okay first of all that is the cypher story we all need now yeah. but secondly yeah that's that is my cypher my cypher you know would see somebody cast a spell like a Doctor Strange and watch it fly and say oh I see now. It's very beautiful. Thank you for coming spell. And like the spell would wave back. Like there's something about this character that I think the visuals really needed to capture with a gorgeous efficacy and they do. The only place the visuals let me down is that it feels like we really relied on English letters and there are other physical characters to show especially considering the book is all about Cohen. so that was maybe my one like only sad place on the art just like my only real sad place on the writing was the story maybe needed a a few more issues. I wouldn't have minded
1: to see English characters at all but the fact that that is the entirety of the background motif or the internal conversation that Doug has with Etienne um, that you know we didn't see hints of Krakowin or the language that Etienne is or you know even just French specific like accented characters or anything like that. We nitpick when something is so good but you know those are things that I did notice.
0: The I'm a mutant killer by accident story is one of the biggest eye rolls for me in all of comics because it just gets so heavily relied upon as a shorthand to not have to do character development but here it was used as a method of exploring the realities of evolution and the dangers that occur when something isn't understood and why we need to understand forgiveness when something is truly an accident you know I don't think we have the space to discuss why that is such a powerful lesson so what was almost a trope that made me roll my eyes, was an exploration of a really important note that doesn't get respect. And, you know, the difference between written and spoken language as a person who speaks ASL and, you know, also speaks spoken languages. Yeah, I mean, they are functionally different creatures. When you're talking about a gloss language or a language with phonics, you know, we are really discussing very different moduses. And if the language itself is a living language and it's this mutant that can evolve, the idea that it can become something different is such a beautiful idea, and it's such a an important statement in fiction. And I think those really are such big ideas. I don't know that we could ever have the room to talk about.
1: No, I could speculate endlessly about where things go from here. You know, developing this language as something that can be spoken to calm other mutants that are flaring up. You know, that could be spoken to disrupt Moira Bot when it comes to destroy the island. There's so many ideas that I can spin off of this that if we were to really go into all the details of what this is and what this means, we'd never stop. But the seed has been planted. And because we talk so much these days about mutant circuits, I would love to see this come back in a big way.
0: And I would love to see it be this creative team. They really did an incredible job with two issues. I think nearly every story published in X-Men Unlimited has been a real treat. You know, big juggernaut guy. I loved the juggernaut story. Uh, Latitude and longitude were incredible explorations. Uh, The Jason Liu work was some of my favorite coverage we've ever done on the network. This story is no different. You know, I think taking a step back and looking at it with some objective eyes, I need to give the idea of what the creative team was going an A. I It's as close to an A plus as I can give an idea. I think ultimately due to the fundamentals of the execution, whether it is the limitations of two issues or some places that because the story didn't have the room to breathe, I think maybe I didn't connect with some things. I think i give the execution a B plus A minus, but you know, this is one of those things where like, now I want this book. I want depth character spotlights on major characters that need them. Yeah, this is where my heart is
1: at. I completely agree. I would love to see more character spotlights and in-depth stories and ones that really remind you how complicated each person's powers are. I also, you know, Doug says he's got work to do to make this thing work, to figure out this living language and how people can speak it again and how this mutant can experience the world as living language. I really hope that somebody shows us that work and shows us that result. Well,
0: until then, we have another set of incredible books to take a look at. We have New Mutants number 28, followed by a look at Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor numbers one through three. Once again, these both have major influences from the New Mutants and Inferno eras. And it's so fascinating to see the way these characters have evolved and then also crept into other parts of the Marvel universe. TK, I love talking about this stuff with you, whether it's the MC2 Punisher and Ghost Rider, or the New Mutants as a whole, it is always a pleasure to talk about this stuff.
1: I, too, have such a blast talking about this stuff, and what a treat to get to celebrate the New Mutants and these really funny through lines that came up this week with the New Mutants and Sim being just very important to a bunch of stories that are being told and kind of refreshingly important stories that are not related to Judgment Day. There's just still such a complicated world out there, even when you're not looking at the line-wide enormous crossover event and I love that for everybody.
0: And we love making this show for you 3 times a week every week whether it's MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays or XI4P Premiere Fridays. You can get everything you need for the show from axisforpodcast.com and axisforpodcast on Twitter. Until we come back, TK, where can everybody find you?
1: You can find me all over the show, especially on MC2 Mondays talking about Spider-Girl, Wild Thing, all the amazing characters that we've come to love there and on Wednesdays and Fridays talking about all the books that came out that we love and we want to explore with you guys.
0: You guys can find me all over this show as well as our partner channel over on YouTube at Hubs Plus Network where you can check out that partner series for this show, The Billy Club, where myself alongside Tori Sheehan take a look at every appearance of Daredevil starting in 1964. I think we're up to 1967 now. So we're getting somewhere-ish. We also take a look at Daredevil news, new releases, and trades. So you definitely want to check that out. Don't forget you can Check out my original work over at KidRiotComics.com, as well as in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology filled with Marvel greats like Cena, Grace, Anthony Oliveira, Terry Bloss, and more. It's a pleasure to be part of that. You can check that out through your local comic book shop. And until next time, enjoy these last two incredible segments that I am so proud to bring you. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krokoan gateways open. Remember, it is all judgment, all summer long. And we'll see you. I'm judging you right now.
2: Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Exes for Podcast. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at Desloroy Way on Twitter, where you can hear me talking about who is my favorite limbo queen. Everybody knows, but I didn't have a new question. Is she name.
3: Jamaican? <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, she's Romani, but she's just drawn as a German lady for some reason, and- she has a really unfortunately close relationship with her brother, but <sighs> <that's> <sighs> a a clean. <laughs> some
3: things never change. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D R A N T I
5: S 82. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy that's HowdyDuda. That's H O W D Y D U D A.
3: And that would make me Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. And you can find me over on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram occasionally, and Hopefully, you will survive this issue, unlike Ileana Nikolovinia, Rasputina, the secret queen of limbo, who showed up after we had no even inkling that she existed. Woo!
2: And I guess that means we're talking about
3: New Mutants 28.
2: This issue was brought to us by the talented Vita Ayala as our writer. Rob Reyes is our artist for the main story. Jan Dersima is our artist for the flashbacks. Our colorist on the flashbacks is Ruth Redmond and Beastie's Travis Lanham is our letterer and production for this book does everybody have a favorite ruler of limbo I'll be totally transparent my favorite ruler of limbo was always Amanda Sefton I have a soft spot for that weird girl who loves her brother
3: are you sure you're not talking about Ileana
2: their relationship doesn't get as (laughs) bad as Kurt and his foster sister Amanda good old Jermaine Sardos. that's my favorite (laughs) limbo ruler so does anybody else have a favorite one is it magic for everybody or you know, is there any Velasco stands in this audience?
3: Oh my
5: god, Ew.
2: no. No.
3: I
5: no. always <laughs> yeah. is as, like, the true ruler of Limbo, but I personally am extremely excited to see what Maddie does with it, so I'm gonna go with Madeline as my new favorite ruler of Limbo. There's a lot of potential for new ground. I think I'm gonna wait till the P comes to rest, because
3: this shell game has been going on real fast paced, and I never honestly saw Magic as the ruler of Limbo, because she never wanted to be there. She he took as many vacations and days away as humanly possible. I see limbo as something that was forced on her, not something she wanted. So I really want to see if Madeline does something different.
4: Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I want to like Madeline in the position. I don't feel good saying that magic is my favorite because how traumatic the experience was for her. I don't want to place that classification of of saying that she's the best ruler for somebody who didn't want to be involved with it and had all that trauma as a lead up to becoming the ruler.
2: I could see why she would never want to be the ruler of Limbo, really. Limbo is the place that stole her youth, her innocence. It's her abuser, like not Limbo itself, but that's where she was abused as a child. And she has to live every day with her abusers, which I love is the same story that we're getting told why Maddie can't live on Krakoa.
5: The parallels between Madeline and Iliana are so good and so rich, and it's amazing that nobody ever saw like the way to do this before. Like This is such a phenomenal book in so many ways. It's very, very smart. It is a bookend for closing off the threads of two stories that have been going since the 80s definitively in a way that you almost never get in comic books it paints a strong parallel between two women who have constantly had to be confronted with alternate versions of themselves that are hostile and kind of both of them have had to integrate those versions into themselves to make a complete person going forward for themselves it's about two people who've had their agency taken from them and had to reclaim it through bloody violence and occult magic there's there's so much here and the story works so effectively not only for closing off the threads of magic being tied to limbo and maddie being tied to her violent past but also the transfer of power between them ties that parallel so closely together and is a brilliant move going forward for giving the characters both new leases on life. it's astonishing
3: absolutely as much as i had problems with this issue i also did like this issue because well I, i like this whole arc because it's finally examining the victims and i think for a long time you know maddie was just a victim but without agent without power without her own story we've always just been told, oh she's the most dangerous thing to mutant kind oh she's violent she's out of control and it's like bitch she has been controlled horrible things have been done to her like she has to be constantly navigated by men she has not been given her own agency and then she was forced to survive and and work alongside and be in the same place as her abuser who created her. She's been called so many horrific things. Like, yeah, of course she doesn't want to be on Kirko anymore. That is just an abusive place where her abuser is held in higher regard than she is. And I want to know how many people have been victimized in real life and then had to work right next to their abuser and their abuser is treated so much better than they are. So for that, I will give it some accolade. It is
5: really interesting as well how Cyclops seems so much more comfortable working alongside Sinister despite being victimized just as much by him if not more than Maddie uh, just because of how long he's been tortured at his hands but not only is the difference between Scott and Maddie that Maddie is a woman and Scott is a man and there are different expectations placed on both of them for how they're supposed to deal with their abusers but also like I mean she didn't have anything before him you know Scott at the very least has things outside of Sinister he's got his family who are from before he's got Jean who is separate and for Maddie like Scott's family and Jean are just compounding the injustices and indignities on her just by their existence. Why
2: is Danny Moonstar being so hard on Maddie Pryor over everyone else? Even Colossus, who was part of that original Outback team, is able to say, okay, Maddie, we can move on. We can forgive and forget. And Danny Moonstar is just still like, no, no, it's not a good idea.
5: I feel like Danny Moonstar under Vita Ayala's pen has been somebody who always thinks she knows better than those around her. I don't think this is to Danny's character, but I think it makes a lot of sense with her long time as thinking of herself as a leader of the New Mutants and of various teams and her leadership role, but she didn't want to face Kosmar's problems early on, on her terms. She just thought, you know, like, you should just be happy with the body that you have because this is, you're a mutant and you're beautiful regardless of how it makes you feel. She did the same kind of thing with Rain several times by not taking her as seriously as she should have with the Shadow King. She couldn't accept the Shadow King as well or change with him. Her treatment towards... Anole as well and like even the Jersey Devil out in Otherworld Danny spent a lot of time being like well okay I guess it's okay if you hang out here in Otherworld as long as you check in with me and as long as I give you permission there's a lot of Danny as this character in Vidayala's New Mutants that is somebody who always thinks she knows better and often doesn't trust taking risks anymore or anything that might be dangerous and I think that's something with how Resurrection may have changed her mind but also maybe the events of like Rose and Canny directly before Hawksbox she just, she's a, a person now who does not want to take risks with mutant deaths in a way that she was not ever before.
3: I really don't like this treatment of Danny Moonstar. I say this with love and take this a little bit from the queer community. She's kind of cunty in a <laughs> bad way. Like, she's not the C word, but like, she just comes off like, oh, the only opinion that matters is my opinion. The only thought process that you can follow is mine. And I'm like, that's not Danny Moonstar. Like, Like, that's just not her at her core. I can understand her being very cautious because, oh my god, the Goblin Queen is scary as shit. Okay, I get that. But, like, this does not feel like how Danny Moonstar would actually approach a situation. And it kind of bothers me. Are you saying
2: she's a little Danielle Karen Moonstar? Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah,
3: she is. Did you see that pose where she's like, "Mm, I don't know. I'm like, bitch, get the Karen arm cross undone. What the fuck is going on?
5: Looking <laughs> that page right now, and she's just like so standoffish and like mm, I still think no. After having it explained to her four times over the course of these last four issues, she still feels like it's dangerous. I did like having mm-hmm. magic lampshade that by saying like Hey, if there are any other questions that aren't a retread." <laughs> <it'd> be <fun." laughs> well, yeah. they've,
3: been, they've been together for what weeks or months now. Like you would think, in all of that time in limbo as they are training, that they would have talked and started to understand each other they're better. But it's like they've been in separate corners of that cave just <laughs> not at all talking with each other. I'm like even if you don't like it, this shit should have been handled weeks ago. And it said you're still bringing
5: it up at the same old harmonica song. But she's been distinctly untrustworthy specifically of two people who have really victimized the new mutants in the past. So I understand why she would have a hard time letting go of like the Shadow King and Madeline Pryor as the Goblin Queen. But what's funny is like, I don't know, Madeline and prior wasn't even like the main victimizing forest string inferno it was nastier yeah. in a lot of respects towards magic yeah. and magic herself was the victim of all of that so it's it's really strange that she's so hard on maddie it fits with how she's been in this run but it doesn't necessarily fit with the danny in my head all the time
4: mm-hmm. yeah I,
5: I really like colossus in this story this is like the first time i've liked colossus in a really long time especially that conversation at the end i thought it was nice to see him finally have an empathetic um, emotionally open conversation with his sister and one that he starts because he'd have to. Magic is just going to keep her walls up forever, and Colossus keeps his walls up until the dead last part of this conversation, where right at the moment that Magic tells him you failed me, and I failed too, and I want to let the ugliness go, the moment that she says, I want to have my new beginning with my family, with the people closest to me, he drops his metal armor and smiles at her. For the first time in a really long time, Colossus is himself. He's her brother. He's the little boy that she grew up with on the farm, on the collective. He doesn't ever really drop his armor a lot anymore and we know from the past that when Colossus is feeling insecure or alienated or like he's doing something wrong he stays in that metal form all the time and not only was this him dropping his walls emotionally but like literally and physically allowing himself to be the human man that he was when they were kids with her and it's really beautiful it was like such a heartbreaking touching conversation right after it I was like I should call my sister and just like say hi.
4: I'm glad that we are finally starting to address the whole under the control of Mikhail. Yeah. yeah yes i thought that it had happened right before the first hellfire gala oh my god that has been a year in story and
5: then. he's been being controlled at least since he killed domino Ooh. yeah don't forget six months ago we got the whole x lives and deaths and x force was put on hiatus for like four or five months <laughs>
2: that's right that's right <laughs> Vita, they write Piotr in a way that I haven't seen him written in a long time. Like the story, maybe an interesting story for Colossus in X-Force, but characterization hasn't been my favorite characterization of him. There's And lately there's been nothing of Colossus that I used to kind of like, maybe not love, but like, like in respect and adore. But like this whole conversation right here brought a little bit more of it back.
5: It reminded me a little bit of what I like about Colossus. Colossus is a character I really like, and he's been doing really bad bad shit since like the late 80s you know he's been getting worse and worse and more violent and committing greater and greater sins and failing over and over and he, in the modern era he has been so distinctly unlikable and there's none of that like pd pureheart that he used to be to make you feel sympathy for this character who's going down a bad turn and honestly i think this is the first time on page that he's ever told anybody that he's even experiencing lost time i mean
3: you, you think charles would already know because i mean he's got no problem going into somebody's brain and just rooting around <laughs>
5: Does his metal form prevent telepathic abilities? Not traditionally. For headcanon, for myself, Colossus has the absolute weakest mental defenses of any of the original or <laughs> secondary X-Men. <film.
3: laughs> he's the quintessential himbo. So like, he is super fucking strong. He's, as he's sweet, so sweet as pumpkin pie. Mm-hmm. Like, he's an amazing artist. He's just a sweet Russian farmer boy who I want to plow my field so badly. <laughs> Anyways. He
5: has the, soul of the <laughs> What does it really mean?
3: <laughs> he does not have strong defenses against magic or mental
5: manipulation like how regular manipulation
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love the journey that maddie takes but the journey that iliana takes is the heart of it all how do we feel about her final form that she evolves to after this beautiful sailor moon-esque magic girl transformation scene where like you could literally hear her say moon power limbo <laughs> yeah. Lim-
3: In the name of Limbo, I'll punish you!
4: I love the transformation, but yeah. I was hoping for a little bit more change in the costume. I was hoping for more than just a reskin of the current
3: Magic outfit. She got a base level New Mutants
5: outfit out of it. And that was it. I was so pissed. I love that outfit. I think it's good. Magic finally has pants and the boob window is reduced to a pop collar. So I know a lot She's, of people who wanted she that. She still has
3: that. midriff and it looks plain as fuck. You give me a Sailor Moon. <laughs> transformation? I want a Sailor Moon outfit. That was a lot of gold armor. There should have been shining and amazingness, and it was supposed to be a representation of herself. It looks like it came out of her closet back on Karkoa. Jumbo Carnation would be so disappointed if he would throw himself
5: from the cliffs of Minsk. Now, I like the main, I like the baseline New Mutants outfit. For like, if she's hanging out at the Academus Habitat, I think this is a really fucking cool outfit. I think it's awesome. I think it takes the character to something that is both classic and a little new for her the the armor itself is I, I don't like as much i agree i don't like the gold color i think it should have been like the silver soul sword armor from the 80s i wish that she had like the full crazy like that big old horn thing and the whole armor
3: i'm not mad at the color i'm mad at the fact that it is such a basic ass look i'm like you you did all this build up for this really basic ass look that looks like it could have come out of her closet or her koa. Like magical transformation motherfucker the the panel
5: doesn't really look like rod reyes art either which is strange i'm sure it is rod reyes yeah. looks very different Iliana looks taller she looks like her body shape is a little different the, the line work looks a little more house style it's it's a little strange
2: i don't like the colors of it with the combination it seems a little rob liefeld ish to me for
3: some reason Ooh, she <laughs> has feet. To injury
2: <laughs> she does have feet. Just the use of the really bright gold colors to signify like it's so 90s and it's symbolism that like gold is like a pure like armor kind of thing.
5: Uh, yeah, I think the gold clashes mm. mm. yellow in a way I don't like. If the armor was still like silver, it would pop against the her baseline costume. And if, if it maybe had some more than just like skin tight, like Tony Stark armor, it would be cooler. Mm. Yeah,
4: I'm totally down with her doing the New Mutants look. I absolutely love her new sword, though. I think oh, it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous.
5: I like the new sword. Can I ask, whatever happened to the Sim sword? Is this it? Where she made out of Sim Soul?
3: That was a temporary construct that was you know destroyed reform but I mean that's why we saw her practicing trying to find the right form for her weapon so we see that she can still conjure like some sort of a soul weapon they're just not strong and super connected to her, which, oh my god, that little tank when she had the anime face. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that. Like,
2: I like the flogger. I was like, yeah, girl, get it.
5: Little
3: Xena chakra. Oh my god.
5: I gotta say, I think magic should either keep the sim sword or have a big-ass fuck-you anime sword, because I don't like magic with just, like, a thin little sword. I think she should have one of those big-ass, there's no way you could possibly carry this gigantic ass Buster sword. It's always a fun time. I, I would
3: love to see it be a a very mutable weapon because we've seen that she can conjure different forms. So I would actually
5: love to see it as a
3: mutable weapon that shows that she can grow and change and transform.
2: I really hope she keeps the Sailor Moon as transformation every time she gets into her armor, and then she just like suddenly gives it to her other friends, and then like half the book becomes transformation scenes.
3: Oh
5: Lord, or they all become magic scouts. Where Madeline surprises older Iliana, who never thought that she would team up with Madeline because she didn't she didn't understand younger Iliana as well as she thought. She did. Madeline just sneaking up on her and putting like a scythe. <laughs> her, her her soul scythe, oh. a blood scythe, and that is fucking sick. Yeah, she's just stabbing you. Oh my through. god, that was so like good. There is so fucking priceless. Extremely funny.
3: Madeline soul scythe. I loved it so yeah. much. Thank you.
5: I love your reaction to the soul scythe, Raven. <laughs> oh, oh my Yeah,
3: god. yeah, yeah. I'm a whore for big fucking weapons that just do serious damage and look badass. I actually kind of liked older Ileana's outfit. I was like,
5: mm-hmm.
3: okay, yeah, I could get
5: behind this. Queen Ileana looks like Ileana if she was in Otherworld. In Asgard. Yes.
2: She looks like Enchantress Ileana.
5: She does look a little bit like Enchantress. At first, I thought it was Amanda Sefton. Without the bangs.
2: <laughs> it's the, the Ileana Rasputin bangs. They rock.
5: Also, she has like maggots, eenie or meanie on her head.
2: <laughs> Who is the real Ileana? Because how many versions of Iliana have there been? Like, so you've got Ileana originally died, right? Then they brought her back. Then at the end of Rosenberg's Uncanny Run, we had Dark Child kind of went off into the sunset in limbo, and then we magically get Ileana resurrected, so we don't necessarily know what happened to the Dark Child because she could still be floating around in limbo. The
5: version of Ileana that is real to me is the one that came back in Ex Inferno. She's the one who got her soul back and reunited with the Dark Child then. So I don't know what happened between then and Matt Rosenberg's Uncanny, where she seemingly has died again, because I I don't know why she would need to be resurrected. She's already back. Yeah. The child after the events of Inferno isn't isn't the real Ilyana in a lot of respects. She's like a time-displaced version of Ilyana who wasn't the one that we knew, yeah. which has always been like why the ex-Inferno Iliana makes a lot of sense to me is because she's like, that's the Ilyana who died in Inferno, not the one who died in X-Men 303. It's Girl.
3: limbo. I mean, it's a place where souls go or, you know, demons are made. It's extra planar. So the fact that there can be more than one floating around it it doesn't squick me out because time space and paradox run rampant in those particular areas and we've seen that time can loop back on itself and it doesn't run linear as it does with you know other parts of the universe so yes they are all Ileana but they are simply different aspects of her or different possible paths she might have taken and sometimes you have to destroy yourself in order to find yourself so yeah
5: I really like that limbo is like it's like if all the what ifs of your life were real all at once because you're living them all at the same time. Speaking of which what did you guys think about that final flashback sequence with Jan Dersima and Ruth Redmond? I, I think those are some of my favorite parts of the series because they harken back to like I don't know June Brigman and Glennis Oliver in the 80s you know working together it's the flat colors are so nostalgic and beautiful and they really pop against the page in a way that is like relaxing to my eyes and the old style house line work is really Beautiful. Uh, I really like that, and I like how it also, as you were saying, Raven feeds into that idea that in Limbo, all realities are one. Because we we even see that flashback to Cable for some reason, where Eliana's talking to Cable about when they were in Limbo about the book. I like that that's in here. I I don't think it really advances the story, but it just says, "Hey, remember when they were in Limbo recently? Well, that was now too."
3: i like I like the style. I definitely love these flashback pages that they did. But I'll have to be dead honest. These last ones felt so rushed. Like they were just trying to close all the plot holes as quickly as possible. Just okay, we got to we got to got to make sure that this sticks. We got to make sure that this wraps up and da, 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 da. and I'm like it it was so poorly paced and brought in people that we had never seen before, so we had zero attachment to them. Like the old wizard dude who was getting bullied by a sim. I'm like, eh, "Oh, oh,
5: Oh, so that's how the book got there. And I like the closing the time travel loop. It does feel really rushed how they were trying to like see it all works as one cyclical story here at the end. But the end is a good place for that. And, you know, Furkus is like a really interesting little tiny character that they put in there. He reminded me a lot of that guy that Loki learned magic from in Jason Aaron's Thor run. Uh, I don't okay. know why. Like I had some attachment to them, but like the old wizard dude just came out of
3: nowhere. It's like if we had seen just little, even if they were just background, if we just seen little bits of them throughout the storyline. You would have been like, oh, oh shit, this has been going on the whole time, and, and how did I not put this together sooner? But instead it was just like, here's what happened. And it's like, why do I give a shit about any of these people? Like, oh, old wizard dude gets bullied in hell. No shit.
5: That is extremely <laughs> so like, great.
3: Yeah, so I'm just like, oh, okay. So she, was, she as a child was nice to this one wizard dude who apparently has more than enough fucking magic to alter time, send friends us back to plant the book to write the book to do all these things i'm like I wish I could care more about him, but I didn't because you literally put him in, in like the last four pages.
5: Honestly, the part to me that worked least was the inclusion of the little goblin as like a real character in Limbo rather than like a metaphorical allegory for Ilyana. you know? Like the whole story has been like an allegory for Ilyana with her being the little goblin. Yep. And the little goblin even has Ilyana's little horns on her head. So did Fergus using this ritual create this little goblin as a metaphor for iliana and then send her back in time with the book to give it to her it seems like a lot of work when you could have just turned the book back
3: i think he referred to Freckus as iliana's familiar so apparently she's a familiar that iliana doesn't know she has yeah i don't know there's a problem with that he takes
5: her hairbrush i'm assuming it has something to do with like taking her hair and then using that for like sympathetic magic
3: fucking full minute, I'm like, why the fuck do you have a hairbrush? It
5: definitely leaks a lot of work up to the reader there, and all at, all at once at the end, rather than giving you any clues that you could solve a mystery, you know? But maybe it wasn't a mystery. Mm-hmm. I'm either. okay with that.
2: There was stuff I liked about it, and there was stuff I didn't like about the flashbacks as a whole. Art is beautiful. I love that aspect of it. I love how the coloring, how everything works well in the art-wise. I think, for me, it's the fact that we're adding these stories of, you know, small hope, moments of hope, and maybe small joys that Ileana had, and and we're in this the arc about how Limbo is such an awful place. So like, I know we there's always good moments in all of the sea of crap, it felt like little weird additions. I
5: and mean, yeah, it's supposed to inspire her escape, right? Like it's what inspires yeah. her to escape from Limbo. But like, I feel like the character Iliana is, is somebody who was always going to escape from Limbo exactly oh my god yes oh i had not put that together thank you didn't need help getting out like beyond the help Mm -hmm. she already had from storm and kate and various other characters yeah
2: and seeing what sim did to pyotr like
4: I was confused by the whole little goblin thing suddenly being a real character and not just an allegory for Ileana. So that that was a little weird for me. But I really liked the art. I loved that it had that feeling that it was stuff that was that was part of the Magic miniseries. It was fine in the end. That's a good way of putting it, yeah.
5: <laughs> it's it a little unfortunate that Ruth Redmond and Jandersma have... Uh hot sim this sim yeah is <laughs> what i'm always like please. oh don't. honey no no i know this is great. no i think i i hate sim yes, a lot more is. than i think even your basic x-men fan hates sim because i just know of the connection to dave sim and it makes him all the more vile uh,
4: mm. uh,
5: for, our, for our listeners who do not know sim is isn't like a weird little parody joke on dave sim the creator of cerebus the aardvark uh who is a vile misogynist uh but you can yeah. go and search that out on the google if you're so interested
2: where do y'all fall for the future for Maddie Pryor? Is Maddie Pryor going to prove Danny wrong, or are you Danny Moonstar? And you're like, No, this is a bad idea. She's going to fuck shit up.
5: I'm like, I'm entirely sure she's going to fuck shit up, but that's like in her nature as a character who's like not necessarily a superhero, but I don't think she's going to be a threat to the mutant specific. So I'm happy for that. I'm happy for her. I hope she makes good choices. I don't think she always. Will.
3: I don't think it's fair to place all of the responsibility directly on top of her and go, You cannot fix this up. It's like, This is. Her first time running her own fucking life, let alone limbo so like she's if she's gonna fuck up yeah she's gonna fuck up because it's her first fucking time there needs to be a bit of grace but do I think she will intentionally fuck shit up no I loved the, the whole little speech she gave where she's like look I haven't been able to be a person outside of the men in my life who've literally put their thumbprint on like fucking every move like speaking of sinister so like this is my first attempt at being my own person And I deserve that chance just as much as he is getting, without question, his chance to do his thing on Krakoa. So, like, let me be a person. Is she going to be perfect? No. I have some
4: major concerns over the length of time between her ascending the throne of Limbo and the start of Dark Web. Uh, Yeah.
5: She is definitely wearing the exact outfit at the end of this series as she is in the end of Spider-Man Beyond. So I would assume that that takes place directly after this.
4: Mm. So
5: that's how I'm feeling. I'm...
4: (sighs) I was really hoping that we would get some time to have some growth with her before she theoretically becomes villain again. I'm hoping that that is a big fake out. I really do have a lot of hope that she can do some great things in this position, but I'm I'm scared that the writers are not going to give her that opportunity.
5: Yeah, I, yeah. Would, I would agree that the Spider-Man desk is not going to look at her with the same level of love and care that Vidayala and the ex-office at large even would. Although having Zeb Wells on Amazing Spider-Man gives me a little bit of hope that maybe somebody will do right by her in the future over there. But yeah, it doesn't doesn't look good for that. I don't expect her to come out of this at the end of this series as a superhero. I don't think she's even a good person necessarily in this run. I think she's just, she's making the transition from supervillainy down to person who can decide their destiny. And she can decide her destiny as supervillainy. I'm okay with that. Honestly, I think that's not, I don't think that's a loss of growth. I think that if she gets to choose what she's doing, that's a growth in her character. If she gets to control her life from here on out, that's for the best. And I think we're being a little bit of Danny Moonstars if we're like, well, she now has to only do good <laughs> things and be heroic. You know, in the real world, I would of course hope for her to be a superhero. But in this world, I do believe in women's wrongs. I do believe that if a woman chooses to and wants to do supervillainic supervillainous super things, I think she could. And honestly, I hope she'll keep up her end of the contract. I think she has to. I think she's no longer going to be a threat to Krakoa specifically. Maybe she wants to be a threat to humans. I don't know. I'm okay with that. (laughs) I'm
3: just very tired of, of super powerful women being shoved into villain roles while literal Nazis and abusers fully fucking exist. Eugenicists fully fucking exist on Krakoa without question. But heaven forbid you get a very strong and powerful woman. They are almost a unilaterally across the board shoved into some sort of villainous or or antagonist role and it's tiresome because it's mm-hmm. been done especially with Madeline's character you can't expect a character to grow if when they finally get agency they get directly shoved back into villainy like they need some time to
5: like fucking grow I think you make a really good point there I think you make a lot of really good points there yeah. what do you think about the possibilities for her then being shoved into the role of a villain at the end end of this series, because she's the queen of hell. I mean, I know that magic didn't necessarily turn into a supervillain as the queen of hell and Madeline doesn't either, but I feel like the setup there, and especially the setup at the end of the series, doesn't really trend in a heroic direction.
2: We've rarely seen people try to dive into like the day-by-day ruling of Limbo. <laughs> and the only time we actually got to see it, like Amanda Sefton sending them to go do
5: her bidding. Most rulers of Limbo either use the forces of hell, of Limbo, as an army to do bad things in our world, or they kill the demons there and slaughter them and terrify them in order to keep them cowardly so that they don't do bad things here on Earth. It seems like that's the two options, right? Is Either you <laughs> want to use them for bad things, or you want to kill them and terrify them and oppress them so that they don't do bad things. I'm starting to come around to the idea that the demons in hell are maybe sentient people, and they often seem to just want fair governance, at least in this series especially. They keep talking about, like, why do we always have to lose that them? We should have somebody who actually cares about demon <laughs> politics. Demon <laughs> right. Maybe Belasco was the best ruler of Limbo. He's a terrible, terrible person, but like maybe that's what the place wants and needs. It is, it is like hell. No, I'm not sure what Limbo's no. function. Limbo doesn't actually seem to have human souls. It, it doesn't seem like it requires people to like look after damned souls or punish the wicked or anything like that. It it just seems to be a place where there are a lot of demons and somebody needs to rule them. <laughs>
3: which I very much did not appreciate. The pentagram. Oh,
5: I, I like or that, but I, I feel like. A, a Occult, demony pentagram things.
3: I don't mind that, but it was a really, really lazy one. I'm a witch. <laughs> they just drew a, a layperson's pentacle. This is the queen's throne room,
5: and you've got this little pentacle over her throne. I'm sorry, what? She did in the original Magic Iliana and Storm series and in later New Mutant stories use a right side up pentacle. I think within the realm of like limbo in comics, this is the kind of pentacle that you'll eventually see around Iliana.
3: But we've seen the eye of agamotto we've seen clea's magic we've seen bands of Sidorak and sidoracian magic like could we please try to actually like give some signature like put some put some fucking flavor on it get some goddamn seasoning on it for okay. Okay. Sake. So you're saying
5: <laughs> instead of using like i mean i i do think this is just because it's tied to the original series and like that is so steeped in like claremont's idea of wiccanism mm, yeah, well. i think his wife was mm. a wiccan time but like i i see what you're saying. This should have, like, a Limbo in the Marvel Universe signature to it, rather than just being like, oh, pentagrams mean devil. I do like that last page, just because it looks like an Anthrax album cover, (laughs) but...
2: (laughs) Maybe Maddie will be the one to give it its own thing, you yeah. know? Hey, because she's she's out there trying to find out who who
3: is Maddie Pryor
5: It'll be if the she's image not. Image a black
3: hawk. <laughs>
2: oh. <laughs> be underboob.
3: The illustration that we saw from the fairy tale book—that was some gorgeous fucking armor. That's what I wanted to see Maddie kind of end up in, like something like that. Instead, they put some gold accents on the boot and just kind of covered the boobs. I'm like, come on, guys, you gave us you gave us so many lovely, gorgeous ideas in the fairy tale book. Why not?
5: realize he's Really for her. love these uh, fairy tale outfit. That is so fucking <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I would have absolutely
3: drooled if that's the outfit she ended up in. And so they just kind of covered the boob window, but left her in like the thong with the thigh highs. I'm <laughs> just like,
2: the, what she's wearing in the last page is pretty covered in.
3: Yeah, it looks like pants. she's seated. I mean, she's seated. Like... Those
5: are thigh high boots. Oh, they're thigh highs. Oh my gosh. I, okay. Yeah. I thought they were pants. Yeah, no. they look like
3: pants in here. Okay. <laughs> no, she's just seated. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's. Uh, that's a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, that's hence, that's, hence that's when I was like covers. oh, oh, they just covered the boobs.
2: It's always a struggle, right? <laughs> to to keep a oh, character's yeah. signature look and I guess Maddie's signature look is, you know, midriff and underboobs and try to update it and make it something more appropriate so they're like no more underboobs.
3: What about the beautiful red hair and the shiny black? I mean, that's also very signature of her. Like you can change the outfit, give her black and gold and you know, just give her. She's a fucking queen. She's a fucking queen. Like, go ham at least on that first outfit, and then par it back for you know more. Uh, what do you call it? For more, like, oh, you know, I've got to go wander around hell and handle some shit. I can't go clunking around in all of this. Okay, we're gonna par back and give it a more streamlined look. I'm cool with that. But when you have her sitting for her first day as queen on the throne, give her a majestic as fuck outfit. <laughs>
2: hey. At least she's not doing it in that green flight oh. suit.
3: <laughs> well yeah. No, I, I I had complicated feelings about this issue. Some of the some of the glaring mistakes that were left that somehow the editors did not catch were, were really super jarring to me, but overall, I guess I'm satisfied with how this art wrapped it.
5: Yeah, I, I really like The Labors of Magic. I think it's the definitive Madeline Pryor story and the definitive Iliana story in a lot of ways because yeah. it's a sequel to both theirs, okay. you know, Inferno and the original Magic I think it works great as a continuation of both stories without having read anything in between. This is a
2: beautiful arc and I like where it's gonna set Iliana up for the future. I love in the um data page that we get where she's you know basically trying like writing to the council, she's like, Hey, I'm not the ruler of Limbo anymore. You know, like if that sucks and it's gonna mess up shit, whatever. If you don't need me as war captain anymore, so be it. But like I had to do this for me and I had to grow as a person. So I love that she's did that despite what she thought she could lose if she loses her war captainship because she's not the ruler of limbo anymore charles xavier is a jerk
5: i mean he is i will riot i'm looking forward to those danny lore guest issues i'm very much excited about it 29 30 i
3: think yeah those are cool <laughs>
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and I'm transforming Undrawn into all sorts of things.
4: <laughs> I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2.
1: And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X. And as always, we hope you survive the experience, unlike Sims Pride after fighting with the mighty so.
0: So we are here to continue our discussion of Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor. We're looking primarily at parts two and three, but, you know, we're going to kind of take our eyes backward toward one a little bit here and there. Written by Torin Grunbeck, with art by Michael Dowling and Jesus Albertov, with letters and production by VCs Joe Sabino. There are a number of really terrific covers to this title. Uh, the main cover by Ryan Stegman. There's, of course, variants by Alex Horley, Jungan Yoon, and Peach Momoko. This book, really, I have some questions about it. I'm really glad that, you know, it's legacy Numbers 20 through 22 so far it's really exciting but i am okay so we all kind of have to say synergy time right like this was clearly meant to be the thor book at the time of the movie that has jane in it right
1: yeah it feels like that i want to say yes but increasingly you know as i talk to you about comic books and sales figures like exact sales figures come more into mind I start to wonder like there's just not that big an audience in the comic books no matter what you do compared to how many people are watching the movie and these things keep coming up at times that it cannot possibly be coincidental because it happens so much but I guess I'm just wondering like what's the point and what's the broader strategy I imagine there is one again it's Disney and Marvel like they know so many things that I do not know and they know how to do this but I just get so curious about what the benefits are of a book called Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor that looks so unlike the movie and has so much that isn't there. I I suppose the best argument I can make and hope for is the thing that I talk about all the time, which is the hope that people who are more MCU people will see a book like this and come in and read it. Maybe it's a bang for your buck in terms of seeing all this stuff, but I sometimes wonder about if it ought not to be stuff that is more recognizable to those people. Like, those people have no idea who Beta Ray Bill is. I have a lot of questions. I don't hate any of this, for sure. I think It's really cool and really fun.
0: I hope Beta Ray Bill meets the Hulk at some point and he's like, I am Beta Ray Bill and
3: Beta Ray Bruce.
0: That's, that's, I think where I'm a little bit thrown. There's something that I'm starting to see more and more as I'm increasingly looking at comics, you know, I guess kind of like a line editor. And I'm trying to, the more I navigate building this show or building my collection, trying to figure out how I want to read my books that I enjoy, I'm finding that you can see threads of what was continuing to survive in runs. Now, I think one of the things that comes to mind is that Jane Foster is Valkyrie in the pages of jason aaron's avengers where she's serving a really interesting role she's not doing quite as much as i'd like but the arc is very complex and it's part of a bigger picture i'm sure she'll come into play in a very big way down the line as so many of jason aaron's storylines pay off over a long period of time but the thing that strikes me is the era of marvel that birthed jason aaron's thor is long gone and we entered the sort of Krokoa said fuck everything you know kind of age and now everything's got to be be just as cutting edge as Krakoa or it's kind of X-Men Legends and that kind of becomes a dramatic reality when you look at this Thor book. This Thor book is a Marvel universe that is long gone and it's not to say that Torrin Grunbeck has not done a beautiful job crafting her own brilliant narrative that she traces through the pages of this title, seamlessly weaving together the works of several writers over the course of decades and coming to her own uniquely wonderful vision. But I feel like then okay just start over maybe i feel as much as i love what this book
4: is doing it feels like a book
0: that represents a time that is no longer what marvel is doing
4: it kind of feels like it's going to lead to a reset to me between the pretty much utter destruction of asgard and whatever is happening with Thor Odinson. It doesn't feel like we're going to be stuck with the same Thor status quo that we've had as a result of this book.
1: And I guess I just really don't know because I can see a world in which this is very Thor legends and the reset is like oh and then everybody forgot and we you know went back to one and everybody is essentially where they were when this ends and it was just a really beautiful story about a moment in thor time that because this is kind of like a off to the side mini series that isn't weaving in with judgment day or avengers assemble maybe it will maybe that's what we'll find out is going to happen but if it doesn't then i i have trouble believing that they're going to entrust this series to the big moves i would be happy to be made wrong but if this is the one that is like about to take us to the next step in whatever is going to happen with thor and none of this is like the creative team. It's editorial and company as a whole. I guess I'm curious what the marketing strategy, what the hype strategy, what the tie-in strategy was such that people would understand that this was a relevant book if it is relevant. And if it's not relevant, what it's doing, what its point is, other than to just be a beautiful Thor tale.
0: One of the things about this beautiful Thor tale that I couldn't help but wonder about was as I'm looking at it, I'm like, okay, you know, the big reveal that Sim, this is like Limbo Prometheum. Okay, so now I'm thinking about the Prometheum Exchange. So now this is that weird three or four issues of Excalibur written by I think it was Labdell back in Excalibur like 30, what, 36 to 38 or whatever. And so, you know, we're looking at like the late 80s, early 90s, and it's a Doctor Doom story. And so now my head is going a lot of places and how this is trying to cover a lot of time. So I go back to the first issue and I'm piecing together the clues that might lead me somewhere. I see that we start things off with, you know, a dark warrior elf. And even if you, or a elf warrior, and even if you're like familiar with the character, who I don't know that it makes a huge difference if you are or not. It's still a very kind of regular beat that there is some sort of you know bad guy, and Algrim is just sort of a generic bad guy that fills in for kind of any Thor dude. But then we get specific ones like Ulick, Tear. The fact that Hell is like Nah, and then we find out it's all about getting the keys to Hell. I don't know, but something that this book started out with that wasn't a tie to bigger things within itself but was a tie to other things going on the book opens with Jane talking about how she's here to watch someone die and to help them transition along to the next side but the way she talks about it sort of the simplicity of life and death as fact, it number one does of course mirror the sound of her wings, the famous Sandman tale that has now been adapted to Netflix, you know, Netflix live action forever but it is also kind of reflective of what's going on in judgment day right now and there's a lot of beats here that i feel like have connections places but the connections always fall short of other books recognizing this book
1: yeah that for me is really the big thing this is not touching on anything that's happening now it could like there's time for it to put those connections in or like to have a twist that shows us what what it is but if this is for new fans it is a difficult entry for new fans because it really is not going to look like anything they recognize and if it's for old fans or people who are reading current stuff and are embedded in comics as a whole, I think this isn't really telling you stick with us, like we're going to show you why this is relevant. I just am confused on the strategy.
4: Yeah, I'm confused too. I'm not really sure where this would fall. I mean I haven't been reading current Thor. I haven't been reading Avengers. It For me, it just feels like an adventure that could be taking place at any point and not really having an anchor to reference
0: yeah it sort of feels like when a writer from several runs ago shows up and writes a mini series that goes in current canon and you're always like ah you're kind of picking up on your characters you're kind of using your elements of course using the shattered hammer and having it connected to you know the current things going on in the donny Cates thor run you know i'm not as up to date on current Thor as I could be but I do believe this connects to it pretty directly it still feels as though I I just sort of feel like Jane and Torin Grunbeck and of course the incredible artistic team by extension maybe deserve their book to be treated with a little bit more attention I feel like it gets a lot of variance because they expected Thor to still be in theaters and it'll be on Disney plus soon so the timing of this five issue miniseries is such that you know come out just before the movie and then finish just after you come to Disney Plus. So I get the design of it. But in a lot of ways, this book does so many things that don't get recognized. We have an interracial queer relationship that isn't being recognized. We have multiple women in roles of agency with their own autonomy running their own games. Characters like Loki are referenced, but by male characters showing their own fear and weakness of other characters. There is so much to be said for the ways this book celebrates the idea of the strength of women in comics and in comics as an industry but it's just not getting corporate support for me for my taste and part of that has to do with this is another example of a book where the villain is from another place we had Loki and Legion of X we have Loki and Shang-Chi we have now Sim and Limbo in the pages of Thor and I feel like if X fans knew this was happening X fans would have been all over this with everything going going on in New Mutants and knowing that those characters and everything going on in New Mutants is going to somehow lead into Dark Web? Wait, really? Madeline somehow goes from New Mutants to Dark Web alongside Ben Riley. who... Okay, so we've been doing some cross-coverage moment time. We've been covering Spider-Girl forever. Okay, fucking fine. We love us some Spider-Girl. She is another female character who was always treated like the thing from a previous era. I actually can't stop seeing and I know it's that I just edited a whole lot of MC2 this last couple of days so my brain's a little gone but I can't stop seeing how this is a character and a book like I think if you say to people oh yeah Jane Foster's still running around they're like wait as what and you're like oh Valkyrie usually but sometimes Thor and they're like wait what do you mean she's still sometimes Thor no Thor is Thor and you're like right but that's not exactly how comics work when you create a new person that's also that thing they can usually also be that thing it's fine and you get into these sort of grooves, people all thought MC2 was over way before MC2 even got off the ground. So I really do feel like there is a lot to compare.
1: Is this the type of story where maybe it makes sense to start thinking about a, if not separate imprint, maybe separate alternate timeline, alternate universe to play around in?
0: Yeah, I think we might need to look at a way that when a run keeps going, like, I don't know, Jason Aaron's Thor is a VOD. I feel like you could go back to it like as a moment you can say it has these hallmarks this art it expresses this and in many ways that's kind of like what karen gillen's young avengers does and that's even sort of the point of when secret wars did all of those individual miniseries that fit into all of those individual crossovers you weren't going back to E is for extinction you were going back to the era of grant morrison you weren't going back to days of future past You were going back to what that early alternate universe in that seminal run meant to so many people. And I love going back to Jane Foster's Thor. I really do. But by the time we get to the Runa and Jane stuff, you know, them having like a real normal life, I feel as though the first issue doesn't really take me anywhere but bringing me to the event. And then the Thor cutaway that kicks off the second issue feels almost unearned because we had to spend so much time in the first issue, you know, establishing Jane and Ross Solomon was there and any Ross Solomon appearance is the best Roz Solomon appearance. So I kind of feel like Thor shouldn't have been here. It should have been a higher profile book and Jane deserves better. Not than the title, but
1: then the treatment the book is getting. I'm always down for a Krakoa book broadly. I'm down for an Asgard book. You know, I'm down for a Hell's Kitchen book. Anything that is the playground that a group of characters play on where, you know, normally we would get the book being about entitled after the group of characters, but after so long, all of these locations and the side people in them. I mean, some of them are so well known and have been around so long, that they really are essentially A-list stars of their own and a, a lot more get to like B, B-plus list stars. So I'm so down for getting runs of stories that came about because of a character that usually gets their own book or a team that usually gets their own book. But in this case, we're just kind of going about the world- That that character comes from. We we've had that happen with Asgard in the past. Coming off of Thor, Love and Thunder, I think something like that would have, if I saw it, made a little more sense to me, even if it had Jane Foster in the title or was meant to evoke that, that the mission statement would be a little more broad. I think that would make more sense to
0: you. So with so much of this kind of riding on a moment and a mood and a time, with you know Love and Thunder really being evocative and reflective of the Jason Aaron run, with perhaps a little bit more neon humor brought to us by Taika Waititi's unique vision for the ways to combine tragedy, humor, and drama. I think the connection I'm most curious about is the use of Dr. Voodoo, mentioning Strange Academy, the Prometheum. This was a huge pivot to position Jane around a lot of characters that I wouldn't necessarily expect her with. But it does lead me to bringing up my favorite Jane fact, which was that as a result of her second arc, Jane knew about Krakoa way before anyone else did, which is one of the reasons when Moira went to her in Inferno, it wasn't weird. This is the third Jane moment partnered with the kind of mutant concept directly with Limbo, but I can also think of another connection. This isn't the first Valkyrie that's faced off against Sim, because Danny Moonstar is also a Valkyrie who has faced off against Sim. So, between that and temporarily transforming Undrawn into the soul sword or a facsimile of it I feel like one of the things that the Marvel Universe is really hoping to do is tear down the walls between characters we make this big deal about tearing down the walls between realities for events like Secret Wars and Spider-Verse but I sometimes feel like the immeasurable distance between Daredevil and the X-Men can barely be covered and then we get Ben Uric and Elektra and Wilson Fisk all running around an X-Men store. So my question for you guys is do you see these transformative elements under the pen of Jason Aaron and Torrin Grunbeck that have brought Jane Foster out of the shadows of Thor and into sort of the light of the bigger picture of the Marvel
4: Universe? Do you think she has a chance of
0: thriving within the X-Community? Within the X-Community?
4: Mm. I'd like to see the way that her duty of marshalling the deceased to valhalla interacts with the whole resurrection protocols of krakoa yeah i i don't know but beyond that well and now you're that's huh okay
0: well huh so she doesn't only bring people to valhalla
4: well that's true she brings them to whatever afterlife
0: but now is there a krakoan afterlife
4: whatever's past the waiting room i'd say
0: yeah have Is it possible that Jane, as a result of all of this unique positioning, is in a unique place in the time of Judgment Day to assist the mutants in some unique
1: way? Trial Magneto, Wanda creates the Eldritch Orchard, which allows people who have been dead prior to resurrection technology to make their way back to a place that they can then be brought into the world of the living. However, wherever they're coming from to get to the Eldritch Orchard, it would be interesting if Jane had a connection to that place, that she could somehow serve a function the thing i love about the x-men is that question of like could x character sorry that i love that question (laughs)
0: could variable
1: character (laughs) exactly could any given character have a connection to the x-men where you know they would be appropriate to have in books now every single character the answer is yes because there is somebody or something that can tie you to the mutants because the mutants are just a subculture that comes together because of a thing that they all share but they have so many things to share with the rest of the world and that's really the and tragedy. So, you know, the other thing is just Danny being a Valkyrie. I mean, there's from just between the two of them having that connection in the same way that Magic and Madeline Pryor both being of Limbo is how we're having this current New Mutants run have its amazing time. Danny and Jane coming together, that's like an amazing story that keeps her on for Koa. I've been talking about how because Typhoid Mary is a mutant and she and Wilson just got on a boat and sailed away, nothing would make me happier than to have that boat land on Krakoa and for her to petition for her citizenship and guess what if Northstar gets to bring his human husband Mary should get to bring hers so not only do we get two characters that you would never associate with Krakoa but one of them is a human and is a great foil to so much of the stuff going on and throw any name to me who have a character and I can come up with a reason why they should be interacting with the mutants you want to play x degrees of x mutation I am so obsessed with that idea now that it is <laughs> doing for the rest of the week yes I absolutely do want to do that I love that question and that hope for any book especially one like this where it's like I don't know what we're going for here because if you ask me how I think it could happen, my answer is probably not correct, but it does make me think like, don't give up hope yet. The point could be coming.
0: I think my concern with these books that wind up feeling kind of outdated is it's hard to feel the quality of weight. You know, I think one of the reasons that I feel so safe that Krakoa isn't really going anywhere is I don't really remember a time before Krakoa anymore. It's been just enough books. It's not just one title. It's not two titles. It's not every title taking their cue from one book. It's a status quo. Everything is different. It's the Krakoan era. And with that in mind, if you tried to convince me that we could realistically, fully functionally go back, I mean, I could even get rid of the resurrection protocols limitlessly. You could tell me that they can only do five resurrections a year. Fine. You could get me to buy it, right? But you couldn't get me to accept the end of Krakoa as the mutant nation anymore at this point and I think we've entered an age where once the crossover happens that's done because House of X was now it's Krakoa that's done now it's just Krakoa because War of the Realms was the end of Jason Aaron's Thor well now that's just done his Thor is over. Jane as Thor remains an element of an iteration of the franchise that we whether we consciously realize it or not can no longer accept as the collateral damage of a new run. That is to say, I don't believe that Donnie Cates is just going to suddenly be like, oh, can I borrow Jane again? I'm going to kill her real quick. Like, that's not what I would expect of this franchise. So, with Jane off in her own title, unless they're going to make this sort of Thunderstrike Ian mistake of just kind of killing her off now that she's not the main hammer wielder, it's hard to believe that the stakes are all that high for this title.
1: And I think that's what I come to when I wonder about the point of it. Yeah, I mean, I think no matter what, I. I have trouble believing that the stakes are really there. If all said and done, we kind of end this and there hasn't really been any big change or an obvious next step with a new book or something like that. I guess what I can definitively say that makes me happy about it is I think it leaves a lot on the table for somebody else to pick up and play with. It'll be one of those books that whether it's in a year or in 10, somebody will say, oh yeah, I read that and Torin Grimbeck did a lot of cool stuff. I could pick up on you know the fight between Jane and Sim and wherever Jane is next next year, you know, have Sim come back and be like, I'm ready for round two. And that'd be a cool thing. Sometimes read books where you're like, nobody will ever think of this again. And it has no consequence. If this one ends up having no consequence, I think people will still think of it again, because it's really bold.
0: I'm also curious about the positioning of Limbo as possibly now a Thor thing and soon to be a Spider thing. At what point does the interconnectivity and the interwoven web of what the Marvel Universe is looking to accomplish going to truly be an inseparable thing? Because I do like the idea of that inseparability. One of the things that I think is great is, hey guys, how many of you feel that you've read every appearance of Sim? Because I don't feel like I have. I've read a lot of them, but I don't think I've read every appearance of Sim. And I don't think I was worse off for it in reading this either. I think knowing Sim's a bad guy from Limbo tells me what I need to know. My hope is that the final two issues of this title continue to provide the momentum that I know Toren Gr- I mean, Torrin Grunbeck just killed it on that Punisher one shot. So like, I know she has it in her to create stories with powerful stakes and, you know, direct results. But I think I'm going to have to say that we're going to cover the rest of this series as the final two issues at once. It's sort of hard to imagine a world where the difference of issue four and issue five for coverage as a team is going to be representative of any major thing you know not to harp harp on anything but like you know Jane's cancer is something that she's very known for and connected with especially following the movie it like doesn't really come up and that that's probably gotta be a disconnector for people from the films I think the best thing is to just sort of since it's not really for the movie people and it's not really for current Thor people I'm gonna say trade weight the last two what do you guys think
4: yeah yeah I agree we should probably just do the next two together
1: i would say kind of like we have to because i don't think between the three of us we could come up with a solid counter argument for why you would do each one like they're just the next issue would have to so completely blow your mind otherwise yeah we're just kind of waiting for the conclusion and to answer that one question of like was this all just a one-off beautiful story with great art you know really understood a lot of thor characters and moments and motifs or was this a setup for something kind of huge that we're going to need to talk about because it's going to lead into other stuff, even if it is a setup, we're really not going to know that till issue five.